Well, today I'm speaking with Carrie Mendoza, and Carrie is an emergency medicine physician and the director of Farron Medicine. And I am really excited to speak with you because um, I feel like I've I've talked with a lot of people for this YouTube channel uh, that have been involved in the, it, this ideology from a an educational or psychological standpoint, but how this is impacting hard sciences is even more alarming in some ways. It's just, it's, it, it, and, and so I'd love to get your perspective. Carrie, you did a fantastic video for FAIR that, that I've watched and it's a pretty short video. I'll link that below in the video, in the description for this one so that people can watch that. And I encourage people to watch that, but it's, you lay it out very well. And anyway, I'm delighted to speak with you and thank you for being here and could you first say a little bit about your background and what brought you to this conversation? Oh, sure, Leslie. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, you know, having me on and including me in this in this conversation. I do think that, you know, physician voices need to be platform more and physicians need to speak out more. So thank you so much. Um, you know, I um, am board certified in emergency medicine. I uh, came uh, to medical school a little bit later. Uh, I had worked for a few years after college. I had always wanted to be a physician, but I had a lot of heterodox interests, particularly um, I was interested in art history and I got a master's in that and then worked um, in, a, in a museum. Um, I just really loved kind of, you know, history and trying to understand human nature. I think that was the common thread, but I always wanted to go to medical school. So I I went after working for a few years and um, that had given me, you know, some just real world work experience. So when I landed in, in medical school and all the training, I, I had, I think, a, a wider view of, you know, just, uh, you know, human nature and trying to make your way in life. So I think that um, helped me a lot as I was going through the, the training. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the field I picked, which is emergency medicine, uh, you really see a, uh, a certain slice of the whole healthcare system and just what's going on in society. I kind of call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, certainly, there's some amazing things in healthcare we've done, like you know, getting people um, quickly, you know, through the emergency department to say the coronary catheterization lab, if they're having a heart attack or our stroke protocols. But what we also see in the emergency department, because we're safety net um, is the way the laws are in our country. We see people that fall through the cracks, whether, um, you know, they can't get into their um, healthcare provider or whether they, you know, having complications from, you know, certain, you know, uh, medicines or procedures, and then just folks who are sort of on the margins of society with, you know, drug and alcohol abuse, they all end up in the ER. And so for me, I, when I had come out of um, residency early in my career, was really sort of the run up with the opioid um, epidemic. And I was seeing a slice of it where there was a lot of indiscriminate prescribing um, and, and sort of misdiagnosis of people with quote unquote chronic pain, but they'd be, you know, 
18 years old with like a knee injury. So just the definition didn't make sense, but they were put on really heavy duty drugs. Um, I saw a lot of young ladies who had like pelvic pain because of their period cramps where, you know, historically you would get Motrin. Now they were given heavy duty drugs. So I just started seeing this kind of disconnect between um, some policies uh, that certainly start out well intended, but then the negative side effects of uh, the net being cast out too wide was clearly landing in the emergency department. And we probably can talk about that more later, but um, you know, I ended up, you know, I, I still practice, but I, I again see, you know, these kind of, of overextensions of diagnoses and adverse effects. And I think in the um, healthcare space related to uh, sexuality, you know, I started seeing um, changes that were happening just with electronic health records and categorization and then overuse of you know, medications um, that didn't relate to a specific, you know, diagnosis. Um, and I got involved with FAIR because I saw an opportunity to discuss a lot of these issues that, you know, physicians are concerned about, but don't really have an outlet for. Um, and so FAIR has been great to uh, platform conversations through webinars, you know, uh, meetups, uh, you know, social media presence, um, and that has really gotten me um, in, in the middle of this issue with gender ideology because our community at FAIR um, encompasses a big umbrella of parents, um, physicians, mental health professionals, um, it, folks in the arts. And so it's really a great opportunity interdisciplinary wise to just bring these issues uh, to the fore. So. I think I'll, I'll pause there. That was kind of a lot. And I know we'll probably pull out some threads there. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Uh, it's a great background. And it sounds like coming into medicine after having already done quite a bit in, in outside of that field probably really makes you more relatable for your, the patients that you're serving. You probably can, uh, I can imagine that you're drawing from a lot of real world experience instead of having been somebody who just went straight into medicine and I, I can imagine that makes the, a better connection and a better bedside manner in some ways for you with your patients. And it, it's also interesting how you describe being in the field of emergency medicine, that you're seeing all this, this cross-section of what, what other doctors are doing and what, what's going on in the field of medicine because of this catch-all kind of experience here. Um, the opioid crisis, that's that's something that's been very interesting. It's been kind of this ongoing unfolding thing where we've seen, as you say, like these these excesses in prescribing and um, and how does that relate to what we're seeing now in terms of gender medicine? Yeah, I, I see a lot of parallels and it, it is an analogy I talk about uh, frequently. I, and I, I think, you know, fo a lot of folks are familiar with you know, may be familiar with the, the very important element and storyline of like the, you know, Purdue Pharma and the pharmaceutical companies and sort of how they, you know, got um, involved in their role in it. But what I still find that is little talked about um, that I try and bring into the conversation is 
the role of what, um, how hospitals and physician practices work in the incentives um, in the bureaucracy that's developed um, around healthcare that really, you know, I think probably, you know, a starting point easily can be, you know, in the mid 60s when Medicare and Medicaid um, were legislation that was passed um, and not saying that those don't have merits, but what, you know, it's a system, what grows around it then started a big bureaucracy. Um, and an element of that is, um, is the bureaucracy needs to show what value it's bringing to the, the conversation. And of course, you know, we're in a phase, I think in, in somewhat of a, um, I don't know if it's an unwinding phase, but sort of a tipping point where because of the demographics with the aging population um, and because of expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare, which was like in 2008, it's shifted a lot of cost burdens to the states and, and not to get into all that policy. But what happens is that um, there's just this constant drumbeat of like healthcare is too expensive and, um, you know, show me what what the value is here. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of schemes out there in the regulatory world related to that. And why that's important is that, of course, there's a lot of, you know, alphabet soup acronyms that are involved in healthcare. One of them is like, you know, the quality people. And so they've come up with, you know, tools that that it, in systems that say, okay, hey, to measure quality um, for our dollar, for example, we're going to have patient experience scores. And there's a whole regulatory apparatus around that. And some of the, that had been tied to um, the pain scale, which mm -hmm. was part of what was created to measure how well pain is controlled. And, but that came out of a quality initiative. Mm -hmm. um, and so what is little talked about is how that pain scale was promoted um, and partially engineered by the AMA. And the AMA owns um, what's called the billing codes. It's the language for healthcare to get paid. And so on one hand, you know, they're trying to show their value. They need to kind of create this whole world that everything is put into codes and, and scales and measurements to say, you know, they would say like, hey, if, you're, if your pain scale scores in terms of pain control isn't at a certain level, your reimbursements are going to be lower. So mm. they created an incentive structure that um, hospitals and physicians felt basically, they were basically coerced, which, you know, um, should be illegal that you, you know, have to prescribe medicines to get a certain score. So then you get certain reimbursements and bonus mm -hmm. schemes were tied to it. So, um, you know, I think that is an element, these incentive structures that I say are, why don't doctors say no to things? Mm -hmm. and, and some of those elements have never been undone. They just ramp up. Um, under the Trump administration, they did disconnect the pain scale scores um, from patient satisfaction surveys. But this whole concept that the consumer um, needs to like their experience in healthcare is very, very embedded. And mm. that relates now, I think, with gender ideology, um, because, you know, I, I've seen little on people looking at um, 
you know, is the bonus or is the compensation structure, say, for doctors in these gender clinics or mental health providers, how are patient experience scores related to their compensation? Um, I'm sure that they are, especially if you work for like Kaiser and some of these um, big, big corporations. Um, so I think that is just a continuation um, from sort of making the consumer, you know, making the consumer happy, which of course, what they want sometimes isn't actually what is medically indicated or good for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do see that, that parallel here with, with the gender space and this, you know, why part of the group think, I think is, is some of this regulatory apparatus that is prevents it makes it makes it hard for I think some people to go against the grain even though when they know that they should be that is that's yeah. really interesting and yeah. I I I hadn't thought of those those pain scales I kind of remember they they yeah. cropped up out of nowhere and it's the little happy faces and sad faces with the numbers underneath but I hadn't realized that that was so tied to reimbursements and um, like physician success outcomes. Um, it sounds like it's That's really correct. subjective self-report on the, on the part of the patient. And, uh, yeah, that's interesting. And it does seem to relate like on, on some level, when you're going to see a doctor, you do want to be satisfied that you received a, you do want to be treated for the thing that you're coming in for and have somebody who hears you and provides you with the service. But for me, one of the things that I've been observing with this, this gender thing is there seems to be a big divide between um, elective cosmetic intervention and, and something that's really medically necessary. And we have this threat of this threat of suicide being this underlying linchpin. That's kind of like this, if, if we don't do this, then there's, then this is this really horrible outcome. So therefore it's medically necessary. But at mm -hmm. that point, that seems like a clear mental health issue. And, you know, if this person can't tolerate the distress that they're in to the point where they're threatening and it's a threat, I'm going to end my life if I don't get access to such and such care. Well, I, th I could see how that could extrapolate to lots of other things. And mm -hmm. that doesn't seem like a sound place to base medical decision-making on. Right. I, I, I think again, some of the, these elements with, you know, the elective nature and, and the suicide narrative, I think, you know, part of it does again, why does this have so much, um, why is this so, you know, like not questioned? I do think some of the other elements relate to, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation in healthcare where there used to be most physicians just had independent practices. And, you know, if they went to the hospital or they saw patients at the hospital, whatever they would, they had separate billing. But what happened, one of the inflection points because of the way Obamacare was structured, basically giving um, the money really first to the insurance companies, big hospital systems consolidated and they bought physician practices. So there's, I think, depending on the discipline, there's over like 50% of physicians are employed um, by the hospital system. The reason I'm mentioning that is because the hospital system then it becomes that, you know, they have to stay within like a regulatory framework um, that 
isn't again necessarily related always to to quality even though we talked about some of the quality metrics and one way that this ties in is that um again during the obama administration they um uh, have been trying to write in civil rights legislation into um, healthcare law, um, and you know, to some degree have, but there's been pushback. Um, and the reason I'm mentioning that, not to get too in the weeds, is that health systems don't want to be the on the other end of of uh, being called saying they're discriminating. And we know the conflation with you know. Um, you know, sex and gender, but if you're the risk management person and at Kaiser and the big hospital system, they're not in the weeds with this like we are. They're just like, this is a risk. And mm -hmm. so what happens is they just don't want to do anything that would be perceived as saying no to a certain patient population. So I think that's really important to understand that they don't ne they didn't necessarily say like, oh, these are elective cosmetic surgeries. They're looking at this is they're being told, and we can, you know, we all who follow this know the way that that's like a, um, you know, big push with the activists is characterizing it as discrimination. And that's even in some of the legal cases, we see that argument, but the, so a health system just is looking at it like, I don't want to be on the other end of discrimination. So I think that's important to understand. Um, and then of course, again, the suicide narrative, there's so many strands, but one of them again is that if you're seeing a patient, you know, you don't obviously want to be on the other end of a bad outcome, right? And I think the activists have um, done, you know, uh, a, a, a very like strong job of, you know, kind of having that be just the bottom line. And so I think a lot of folks who don't know a, a lot of the real data are just sort of like, um, I don't want to be on the other end of, of that, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, bad outcome. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's, you know, one of the challenges to have educate people around that. But I think just if you had someone in your office, you know, you it, it can be, I think, really scary to these um clinicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like at that point, you're kind of held hostage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, to me, I mean, there's nothing in healthcare, you know, it, when I, when I got into this and heard like that, as I could see that that was such a, a big driver, but it, it just rang, obviously it just extremely manipulative and false to me because there's nothing in healthcare, you know, that, you practice that you're just like, if you don't do this, you're going to commit suicide. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just, no one talks like that in, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's it's a discussion of risks and benefits. And so to me, it clearly just was like outside the realm of healthcare. It's just that a lot of the social activist policies have been enjoined with the, the you know, practice of medicine, but that's just nobody. I mean, yeah, it's just, we don't talk like that. It's, it's mm -hmm. manipulative. It's a, you know, abusive. Um, and so, but the, you know, the issue is that, um, there's a lot of people with, a, a able to prescribe, mm -hmm. prescribe things as well as, you know, write letters, you know, for, for surgery that, uh, are sort of swept, you know, seem to be swept, swept away in it instead of just saying, you know, you know, 
you're having issues here, but, um, you know, just the nuance of the, of the medical conversation, um, and, and just really having the moral courage to say, you know, there's no evidence, there's nothing in healthcare that, you know, if you do this, everything's going to be great. And if you don't do this, you're going to kill yourself. That's not, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's not normal conversation. Mm -hmm. So, and that moral <laughs> courage, you know, it, it, it is really hard to stand up against when, when you're not backed up by your organization. I'm sure that it's very difficult to be the person who's going to be, um, you know, drawing a line on that with your, with your patients. It, it, it is so hard. And my, my first experience when I was um, new, you know, sort of earlier in my career with the, the opioid issue was my very first time that I experienced the fact that what, you know, I'm taught to do in terms of the Hippocratic Oath and just my my beliefs about ethical care were were not supported by the 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 regulatory administrative structure. Mm -hmm. You know, I would I, we could clearly see what was happening is more patients would come to the ER because like the pill mill that they were interacting with, you know, is only open nine to five. And then there was people mm -hmm. that were running through their prescription sooner than a refill. So the, the, the clinic would just say, Oh, go to the ER. So we mm -hmm. started seeing all these people like with these, you know, some, some things were like, they legitimately were withdrawing, which we would treat that. But some mm -hmm. things were like, you know, Oh, I, you know, lost my pills and my luggage at, you know, the Denver airport. This is when I lived in Colorado, mm -hmm. you know, but like, I would see, I saw this woman like two or three times telling me the same story over like three months, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, one, one story. And so it was just like a parade of patients that were coming in that we knew were diverting and, and, and the nurses were just, it was so difficult because these patients, um, we, you know, I coined a term, I would call them narco bullies because mm -hmm. they, it was like, they were addicted and there was this like part of their brain that's not regulated and they just would treat people so poorly. I mean, I had, you know, one story was like a young woman I saw, um, I think she was in her early twenties and this has echoes of like the group that has um, been caught up in the social contagion. Mm -hmm. So it was like this young woman and um, she had chronic pelvic pain um, and she was addicted basically to Dilaudid, which is a very, very strong opioid. Um, and, you know, again, I had mentioned before, historically, you know, we like growing up, we all knew, you know, there was always, you know, those unfortunate girls who like in school would like miss school because their period cramps were so bad and it was mm -hmm. horrible, but they would basically, you know, do Motrin, Tylenol, that kind of thing. Well, there became this cohort of girls who, who they were putting on these heavy duty drugs because of this whole thing about treating their pain and the pain mm -hmm. scale and quality. Yeah. And some of them slipped in and became addicted. And I saw this young lady who basically the clinic had stopped refilling her Dilaudid or it was too early to get a refill because she was overusing. She looked like a heroin addict. Mm. I mean, it was so sad. And she was there with her mother and um, she wasn't acutely withdrawing, but she, I think it had been like a week or so since she had her pills, but she, you know, needed, needed her pills. And, um, 
basically I just said, you know, I, I listened to the story and, you know, empathetic and talked about non-narcotic narcotic things, but I said, clearly, I said, you know, you, you have a, you know, a, a you know, a, a, an addiction problem. Um, and I kind of went through that, you know, the issues with that and how she wasn't able to function. And I said, I wasn't going to ref, they were there basically for a refill. And I said, I wasn't going to do that because it wasn't good for her. It would be continuing on a path that was destroying her life. Mm-hmm. So she said to me, um, uh, you are the worst doctor. I am going to, um, complain about you. I'm going to give you a bad uh, score. And the mother said, we live next to the president of the hospital and we're going to call him when we get home and tell him that you're a a horrible doctor and, you know, incompetent. Um, And I said, okay, here's how you spell my last name. Um, And um, I, I was, I mean, there were difficult things like that. And I had times that people kind of made veiled threats where I had to have security walk me out to my car after a shift. And I had times where I would be in my car at the end of a shift, you know, like crying because it was horrible that there wasn't really a backup for me. You would just hear in this case with this young lady, um, you know, I emailed my medical director saying, you may hear a complaint, here's what happened. And I documented my chart about, you know, the addiction issues and my conversation. And yeah, sure enough, the next day he said, yeah, they complain. But, um, you know, our our fellow doctors were very supportive because we were basically seeing all these all these people. Um, sorry, my dogs are being crazy in the background. We were seeing all these people come in and it was really hard to you know, run the department, but I'm just saying things like that. The hospital administration didn't say, "Oh God, this is you know, we support our doctors." They would say just kind of vague things like, "Oh, um, you know, doctors have to make their best decisions." I'm sorry that you had a bad experience, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't um, so much, you know, do anything more than that. And it's really horrible when you are, you know, spent this time training, you really care about obviously doing the best for your patients. You know, you may have a heart attack that comes in after that or in between, cause you're seeing five or six patients at once. And to just be told by people that you're a horrible person because you won't go along with their addiction. Um, just, it does take, you know, a lot to stand up against that. Um, I, to me, it just was, I, it just was crystal clear to me um, what, what was what was what what's hard and I think ongoing in healthcare for a lot of doctors is this you know they call it moral injury um, mm-hmm. but there's little there's little backup um, and I think that that's that's part of the problem why physicians you know a lot of people that's I would see. Yeah, I had partners who were great people, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to quote unquote fight with these people or discuss it. They just basically would, you know, write them, you know, a quote unquote refill, like, oh, I'll write you for three or four pills. So Mm -hmm. sort of to pass the buck, but they didn't, they didn't want to get into the whole big, you know, thing about it. So I don't know if that, you know, makes sense. Yeah, it really does. And it's, it's, I mean, when you're describing then I like that phrase narco bullies. Cause that really does sound <laughs> like that's what those, th- that description fits very well. Um, the, the scenario that you described and it yeah. it's, 
but it, it seems like it's a natural outgrowth of people having been taught that they're that the priority is just pain suppression, just pain suppression. Yes. And, and that's what they can expect when they go to the doctor. They can expect another prescription for this thing that helps them with this symptom. Yes. And if you are suggesting that there's a better way to do this or that this might not be the healthiest way, then there you've you've violated something that they feel really entitled to. And that seems like a very similar um thing with the other the other ideological trends that we're describing. Yeah, I think that's a, a great, a great summary, Leslie. It, it's you, you, you get inserted, it, you're more seen as, um, you know, someone who's supposed to be facilitating everything. And if you say to them, you know what, I, I, this isn't right. I'm not going to participate in this. It's like, first of all, you're often, it's often the first time anyone has said no to them. And so they're just like, I can't believe someone's saying no to me. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it's that, again, I, I think there's a lot of similarities with gender ideology and what's unfolded with addiction. They, it's like, they're gender bullies. They, mm -hmm. they come after you. Um, they call you terrible name, you know, again, terrible names, all these things that are just, you know, no one's like calling you names because you won't, you know, give them their Lipitor or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just like a different, it's a like a different, um, yeah, thing. Like it's in its whole, it's in a whole separate category. Like the way you yeah. describe, like this doesn't happen in medicine that we demand this or we're going to kill ourselves. So then the yeah. medical establishment says, okay, well, you can have this then. Yeah. Exactly. A whole exactly. other category. Yeah. It, yeah. The, um, the way that we were taught in the graduate counseling program yeah. about, about race and about gender and sex was, it was, it was so surreal to me that I'm in an, I'm in an applied psychology program, a graduate program where we're yeah. teaching adult people to think this way, to reteach how we think about these fundamentals. And it's even more shocking to me when I see some of these, like there's the the clip that went really viral like a year or two ago of this white coat ceremony where they're they're pledging to all these kind of ideological things. When you see this entering into medicine, it's it's to, I guess it's just a whole nother level. Um, and I I was in a uh, in an experience where I was the patient um, year ago, and I was in a gynecological clinic after a surgery and the doctors couldn't say the word woman. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't use the word woman. Like they were saying people with uteruses and things like this. And I just, I, it's really surprising. Are you seeing that coming? Is there pressure to use gender neutral language and some of the stuff that you're seeing in medicine? Um, well, you know, not in interestingly and Yes and no. So first of all, I'm I'm not in um an it affiliated with an academic center okay. um, per se and somewhat on on purpose. I mean, initially my choice early in my career related to the fact that I had a young family and I wanted to do more, you know, just um shift work and not have to come home and like prepare for a lecture or do though, you know, be um at a certain meeting at a certain time, I really, once I, I, you know, have three boys who are now, you know, young adults, teen, you know, teenagers, I, I really wanted to be home as much as I could and, you know, make sure I had, you know, that, you know, 
solid marriage and make time with my husband and all these things. And we lived mm -hmm. in Colorado at the time and our family is in Chicago. So we didn't have any family support. So I, I had thought I wanted to do academic medicine because I also did a fellowship after residency in medical toxicology, mm -hmm. which I really loved, um, which relates to, you know, all the complications um, from medicines and poisonings and overdoses. Um, but basically, I just made a choice after my fellowship that I just couldn't do academics well and be kind of the mom and wife that I wanted to be and didn't want to miss like the time when the kids are really little. So I really got into a stream more of the non-academic world, more what we call community medicine. There's a lot of hospitals Obviously, in our, you know, there's over 5,000 emergency departments in our country, and some of them are, you know, just affiliated with just, you know, community hospitals, not a big medical center. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that the academic um, uh, centers, just like big universities, which a lot of these academic hospitals are associated with, just got sucked into the undertow with um, all the illiberal ideologies uh, in so um, some of those things really are not as infiltrated into the community hospital system. However, with um, the electronic health record um, being mandated by Obamacare, um, it, it, they basically had these regulations that hospitals had to start using electronic records. So what happened is there is a uniformity that's developed. And so I'm mentioning that because the electronic record, I think this was before um, COVID somewhere um, in I think 2015, 16, 17, because the activists knew how to get into that stream back in about 2015, where they mandated the electronic health record started reflecting um, gender ideology. And so, um, you know, one hospital I worked at, it was served more the gay and transgender community, and this is before COVID, I started seeing changes in the in the medical record where historically, you know, if a trans identifying person came into the ER, um, you're, you were always registered as your legal sex, you know, your biologic sex, but we would write in the margin on the electronic um, board, you know, you know, John Smith male, but in the margin, it would say, you know, identifies as a woman likes to be called Sue. Nobody had a problem. The mm -hmm. staff didn't have an issue. The patient didn't have an issue. But all of a sudden, one day I walked in and they just said it was going to be, you know, what we call now self-ID. So mm -hmm. they started just registering people based on the sex they, and it caused all kind of confusion. And I honestly felt it was like a safety issue. So yeah. I, I sort of, um, and that was still in a community hospital system, but I basically migrated down more interestingly to the um, South suburban area, the South suburbs and South side of Chicago. Um, and because the, the, these really aren't big issues down there and where I practice, there's been more issues with electronic health record, which we can talk about later, but it's um, it's just you know classic emergency medicine. Um, the most of the patients are African American. None of this stuff is they're you're, they're there in the ER because they have a medical problem. There's mm -hmm. no like they don't think they need to be taken care of by someone with the same skin color. They know quality when they see it. 
They sometimes they they'll say I was in another hospital. You know, I don't feel like they listen to me. Like it has zero to do with identity politics. That those are luxury beliefs that have infiltrated. And I think it's like almost like a jobs program. And mm -hmm. I think it's part of the bureaucracy where there's a lot of PhDs and people who also used to be clinical but don't want to practice anymore. So they're just kind of towing the line. Um, but I haven't, you know, it just, you know, business is usual mostly where where I am but I, mm -hmm. I do know a lot of this is infiltrated um into the medical schools and I think you're just going to see a big a big lag so people you know I would say definitely you want to go with you know doctors who are more mid-career later career and I think you have to understand the academic centers if you go to for example an ER or a clinic in an academic that's affiliated with a big academic center you are going to see a lot of this. Um, so it's sort of a, a, you know, I think it's like a wave that's mm -hmm. cascading down. Um, I hope that answered. Yeah, it does. That's really interesting. It's <laughs> yeah. interesting because your description of being in how, how being at a different proximity to the academic centers yeah. and, and in different demographic areas, different socioeconomic areas, you, there's a big difference in what you're seeing as a doctor and, in, in the patient population and, and their expectations of being treated in this particular way. Um, yeah. and the luxury belief, you said it's like a jobs program. What did you mean by that? <laughs> oh my gosh. I just, you know, again, I think this relates to like the way I see this giant bureaucracy in healthcare that has grown up because of, again, I think, you know, um, when Medicare, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare were created in the sixties and it just sort of then required, you know, lobbyists and they're a bureaucracy and proving that you're getting value. And there's just a, oh, it's this whole world unrelated to actually delivering patient care, you know? And I think that we see this with, in a lot of institutions, I think it's, you know, my own theory is it's, again, people will put different start points on it, but I definitely think, you know, the 60s, there's an unwinding from that because they're failed policies, but a lot of people have jobs that are part of the bureaucracy that are detached from results. Again, I'm, I'm in suburban Chicago. I mean, that's just like this, you know, to talk about like the teachers union here in Chicago. I mean, there, there's, there's, or in, or in our state, there's, there's school districts where there's like kids have like zero proficiency, you know, in math and reading, but yet they're, you know, the bureaucracy keeps growing and people keep getting their wages increased. And it's, so it's unattached from results. And so I think that um, there is a hundred percent a giant bureaucracy in healthcare that is part of this, you know, quality and measuring and billing, and they just are part of the regulatory apparatus. So this quote unquote anti-racism and you know gender ideology um, you know has been pushed as I said some of the things happened during Obama era and then Trump tried to undo some things and then um, Biden has picked it back up but they write rules into the regulatory apparatus and then the hospital then basically the government says if you don't do this you know you're not going to get paid and then there's just like all these people who have jobs to you know, measure that, are you doing it? And, you know, it's, it's sort of like, 
it, it, a whole world unto its own that is like this self-perpetuating um, machine. And I, I know there's great thinkers who, you know, I know, you know, I, I think Chris Rufo has done a good, good job talking or sort of shedding for folks who don't follow, hadn't followed these things historically, shedding light on the bureaucracy that's there. You you have to understand those those people have jobs. You know, if if um, for example, like there's health systems that you know after you know during COVID at post George Floyd just kind of developed um, you know uh, DEI departments. But yet, like we have a problem staffing our ER because like they don't think about how do you keep, you know, people incentivized to work in these tough places. They don't raise the wages enough, et cetera. But yet there's a DI department. I don't even know what they do. They all I say is like, can I get more help in the ER? These patients, the irony that the patients on the south side of Chicago that you purportedly say you want to help, well we don't have enough staff. Why aren't you raising the wages? But yet there's some DI department. Um, and so, but now these people have like six figure salaries. And I think that they have to justify what, what they're doing. And it just keeps, you know, kind of um, going and, and counter to actually what doctors and patients want and need. It really seems like doing busy work because your main job is too complicated and you're stuck on something like it's like, like there is a it's how do you measure and quantify in a bureaucratic sense when this thing has gotten so big and people individuals and individual health is complex and and hard to measure on some kind of a chart i, I mean i'm sure that they could come up with ways to to make real measurements but it seems like it's a really difficult and sticky question but so we'll create these little little scales instead. We'll play with like we'll we'll give you this subjective pain scale because that's easy and it's right. really easy to to quantify and look yeah. at that across populations. And then the DEI thing sounds kind of similar. It's like we're going to create things that can that can look like we're doing our job. Yeah, yeah. And instead, we're really getting off. We're we're getting more further and further off base from actual medical care. Well, it, it, it's money that, again, for me, who's still, you know, practicing, um, you know, and, and committed to um, helping, like, you know, folks who might not, you know, be getting the best care or just have different challenges because it might be like working two jobs and mm -hmm. you know, they end up in the ER not because they want to, but because like the Medicaid clinic, you know, isn't open off hours. Like there's all kinds of like unbelievably creative solutions, but it's like that unfortunately is not what the system is about. But you, you know, it's frustrating to see some department be created that's saying they're supposed to be helping, but yet I've never met anyone in that department. And how, if they're part of a hospital system, wouldn't you want to be, wouldn't you be coming to say like the ER on the South side of Chicago to find out like what, what you could do? Like, so it's things like that and, and, you know, the billing apparatus around healthcare, there's an army of people that have to be hired to try and extract money to, for the hospital to get paid, you know, mm -hmm. and, and um, yeah, it's, it's an irony that obviously isn't, you know, lost on me or people like me, but it's also one of the drivers that has pushed good people out of medicine because mm -hmm. they're like, this is, this is insane. And then I think also with this anti-racist um, and, you know, the gender ideology, um, when I hear 
you know, um, you know, this industry of, again, I think it's like trying to justify more and more research, but you know, like the journals and these things are all captured, but they're pumping out articles, you know, calling doctors racist because they just do data mining and find a disparity. I mean, it's so, on one hand, it's so insulting and disgusting. Um, but on the other hand, I'm just like, this is just activist stuff that I don't let it get to me because um, I don't know. It's just a sad part of what is going on. Um, but I think, you know, we have to build our own frame. I'm, I'm still committed to helping, you know, people that are in need by just going to work in places that, that do that. But, mm -hmm. um, to see this, you know, in, insulting, gross, like, you know, calling people names and just data mining to find disparities. It's absurd. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not even like how real medicine um, is practiced or what's really actually going on between the mm -hmm. doctor and patient. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> it is It is like you're taking these big aggregates and then making assumptions oh, yeah. based on what you're seeing. And one yeah. thing I wonder is that how with, in, in specifically in regards to gender medicine and, and the hormonal uh, supplementation or, and therapy and the surgical therapies that are being done for people who have gender dysphoria, it, how does that square with uh, medical ethics training? The, the fact that you are, so the dysphoria that, that people are experiencing, I'm sure is very, very real in a lot of cases. And that's one way to treat it is through these cosmetic interventions, but it seems like that's very that should be far down the line after you've already explored other options, because medically speaking, there's no way you're not compromising the person's health through these therapies. So they're not coming out medically in a healthier state. Their, their physical body is in a state of reduced health and reduced right. um, strength. And, and on, I'm sure on all these different measures, a body that's been surgically modified like this it, there's so much risk involved with these surgeries and then the hormones as well. They're, they're causing long-term health problems for the people. So right. how does that square with the, with medical ethics training that you've, you've taken someone and in order to improve a, an emotional state or a mental yeah. state, you've degraded their physical body. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, it's uh, unethical, but it, it, it's, it's within um, a, a thought it's it's a way i think mental health issues have been um shoehorned into again the regulatory apparatus of healthcare which we were talking about earlier um it's obviously a material solution to a spirit a spiritual or mental health problem right mm -hmm. and you to to understand how it's sort of caught up on the super highway of of when things go wrong, like we talked about with the opioid crisis, is that it, it's part of this bureaucracy and the way things are measured and the way the DSM is kind of, you know, there's a whole history behind that. It's like checklist medicine that then can be put into X's and O's, into a scale, put into a code, because the, la the language between your diagnosis and getting paid, again, is owned by the American Medical Association. I don't know if a lot of people know that they have a whole process in order to get new codes for diagnoses. If you don't have a code, you don't 
get paid. So if you're an independent, unless you're just fee for service out, out of pocket, but the way Medicaid say, you know, Medicaid and Medicare is done and, and, at, you know, most things are just mm-hmm. through this billing process. It's not like, you know, you go to the gender clinic and they say, oh, it'll be X amount of money and you give them the money. It's like through your insurance and the billing code mm-hmm. and this and then that. So why that is important is because, you know, mental health conditions have to be um, translated into checklists because to meet the DSM criteria, because otherwise if it doesn't meet that criteria, the insurance company won't pay for it. Mm -hmm. It has to have a billing code. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have to, it's like they're shoehorning things. They have to make it simple and do a checklist and all these things in order, you know, to get paid. And then you add in, you know, the issues with big pharma where, um, you know, I feel that, you know, again, obviously the, you know, it, it, nothing's black and white, but they do wonderful things for, you know, cancer drugs and all of these things. But there is a whole history behind, you know, the medications for psychiatric issues. I mean, the one, you know, lobotomies never were actually made illegal. What they were replaced by the discovery of, you know, the phenothiazine class that actually just, they saw that it, led to folks who had, you know, agitated like schizophrenia and things that they were calmer. It wasn't Mm. like they were searching for that. So there's Mm. a whole history of how these things accidentally became the meds and it's marketing. So what you have to understand is in the psychiatric realm, the material realm with big pharma there, to me, it's been a lot of market making. Like I, the analogy with ADHD, first it was marketed to adults but there's a pattern, then they need a new market and they go down into to kids where again, in the nineties, early two thousands, and, and, and unfortunately this has continued on, you know, now it's just in, in the ether in these schools and everywhere that, you know, every boy has ADHD because you could probably find whatever the DSM checklist, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. And so basically you have to understand like big pharma is part of the material nature of mental health. Mm-hmm. And if you can get a pill then the insurance company might pay for that versus paying, you know, for a therapist. So I think that, um, that is, is huge to understand in this space, because if you have the formula of a, of a medication, a billing code and something that fits in a checklist and kind of can quickly be done, that's kind of the formula right now um, for the big, you know, health centers. And I think the delayed adverse effects, which similar with opioids, but obviously, obviously, um, that we would see things like, you know, people would come in with overdoses, clearly withdrawing, even though the system at large ignored, the numbers kept climbing, they didn't mm-hmm. seem, the regulators didn't seem to care about mm-hmm. that. But it's it's the adverse effects with these, with the hormone medications, it's similar. I mean, they're, they're, there's only like the upside of prescribing, but there's no focus on the downside. Um, Mm-hmm. And I think that unfortunately, you know, they've created a new class of patient and this, it, again, the addiction analogy, it's very similar. There's, I, I consider like the detransitioners really like gender overdoses. Mm-hmm. And I think, 
that the complications they're going to have, and even for the folks who don't detransition, the complications they're going to have is kind of like complications from being over medicated or overdosed. Over medicalized, yeah. That, yeah, that mm. we need, that we're going to see, but of course, it's not being tracked right now in a systematic way. Um, so, yeah, wow, that's, yeah, that's a really great perspective on that. And, um, I remember I worked in a medical clinic, a primary care clinic in San Antonio for five or six years in the 2000s. And we saw mostly older, we had a geriatric population, mostly Medicaid, Medicare. And when we would get a new, like a new piece of equipment, we got a DEXA scan at one point. So it's like, you're going to go through all the charts and it's that marketing thing. Go through yeah. all the charts and look for anybody who's got codes that you can call them in to use this piece of equipment. And it it had this very mercenary feel to it. Like we're gonna yeah. we're gonna pay this thing off, right? And we we because we spent a lot of money on it. So we and so you know ostensibly it's because you bought this because it's gonna help learn things that are right. valuable for your patients in order to help them improve their quality of life, but there still had, there was this, I didn't like, I, there was this yucky feeling of, you know, we're kind of using people to pay for this thing and it's all about numbers and it's about dollars. Yeah. And not to say, and again, it's, it's complicated as you know, because you could say like, you know, um, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, up to date on like, was that original literature or studies, you know, again, a lot of these things are like the studies are horrible as to like, did all these people need that? But let's just mm-hmm. say, you know, could we identify or, you know, it's like prevention. Could we identify right. people and then they can get on something? Because if you get a hip fracture when you're an older person and you end up in the nursing home, I mean, that's a lot of like the people get, you know, there's an argument you could be made that to be made they make try and make financial arguments, but from the human argument, you know, you don't want your grandmother falling, getting a hip fracture, ending up in the nursing home because there's so many complications cascade from that. So right. it's just that it's so it's so bureaucratic and so there the nuance is gone. And because there aren't independent physicians and things and the incentives we talked about, it does end up feeling lucky, yucky, like you're saying, where it's like, that would be great if we could find these people, but like go through every chart and, and call people like what they might not need it. Like then you're doing unnecessary tests on people, maybe putting them on unnecessary medications, yada, yada, you know, on and on. And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a great, a great example where the good intentions kind of get into the medical bureaucratic machine and it comes out where, some people are getting harmed potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that stands out from this conversation is the 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 degree to which things have been bureaucratized and the yeah. the technology involved in trying to look at people at scale. Yeah, is so dehumanizing that yes. it, that that it medicine loses touch with its purpose, and it also seems like the incentives that are created. Uh, push things towards a port sh- towards short-term outcomes like patient satisfaction rather than long-term yeah. outcomes like yeah. like overall physical health yeah yeah it, it, yes that's true and I do think in this age obviously with 
you know, technology, the electronic health record, AI, data mining, decision support tools we didn't get into. They're just like little like widgets and different add-ons in the electronic health record that, you know, to me are very alarming because that, but there's a generation of, you know, people coming through that were, you know, are used to everything being electronic and thinking that if, you know, some decision support tools can have better judgment than them. Um, and it's just filled with like, you know, junk algorithms. Um, it's kind of like a microcosm of like, how do you have doctors that are going to say, well, that decision support tool that's analyzing someone's risk for something is, is wrong. And I'm not going to do that recommendation. Right. Like they, that kind of thing needs is, it is for us who are in, you know, older generation, see that and see sort of, again, check, checkbox, you know, decision support tool medicine um, by people who I, I think it's, 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 that have less contact with patients that see how complicated and nuanced it is, but it's, it's, it's a big, it's a big issue in healthcare and in, I think, you know, uh, medical, medical, medical training um, that is definitely going to be on, you know, ongoing in terms of dealing with gender ideology. But even after we, you know, the, um, most unethical aspects of this are stopped. It's just, there's going to be something else, mm -hmm. you know, that fits in the, in the pattern. Mm -hmm. Decision support tools. It sounds, yeah. it sounds like turning doctors <laughs> into technicians, but do you see any hope for this? I mean, when you say things like after we stop the, <laughs> the worst of this, that's great. Cause that sounds like you're optimistic yeah. that we're getting to that yeah. point, but do you, do you see, this getting any better? Do you think that people are really recognizing the problems that you're describing here, the overall systemic problems with, with structuring medicine this way, or do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Oh gosh. Um, so it's, I, I, so the way I've processed this, this, this moment, this time, um, is I feel that we're like a bridge generation. I think we're at the end of a cycle breaking apart from a lot of policies from the 1960s now. And then again, people can kind of put the stake in the ground, obviously for the back, you know, like the enlightenment, you know, you get into the whole thing. Um, I mean, one of my favorite books that I've read over the past, you know, three years is Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, okay. where he really pulls together, you know, again, like, you know, Rousseau's idea, like where did the modern self develop? And it's just kind of this mix of like Freud sexualized, um, you know, psychology and Freud kind of sexualized childhood, um, you know, Marxism. I mean, all these threads that come together where, why is it the supremacy of the modern? Like if I feel this, you know, this is me and you can't say anything else regardless if it's safe or not. So I, I feel that a lot of these things are coming apart, right? Because it's just gotten so absurd. And when you, you know, interact like we have with like detransitioners and you're like, you're so over intellectualized and so giving supremacy to what the modern self wants that you literally have gotten yourself to rationalize that it's okay to do mastectomies on teenagers because they think they're another sex. Like, let's just step back a second. You know, it's like, 
the eugenics movement in the early 20th century in America, where you think that through Mendelian genetics, you and you can diagnose who's feeble minded, quote unquote, and then you can like eliminate them because that would be better for everyone because there'd be less poor people. So then we don't need to, you're like, okay, wait, stop. You're kind of saying you want to eliminate people that you're over intellectualizing when it crosses over. And so I just think that more, I have never seen more and more people aware of these things. I've historically always kind of had these perspectives. I think, you know, one of the things I didn't uh, mention at the beginning is, you know, my, my grand, my maternal um, grandfather is a Russian immigrant that escaped um, the Bolshevik revolution in 1917. He was, you know, a young man, 17, 18 years old. He was an engineer, starting to be an engineer in school and based and Jewish. And basically that, you know, it was like he would have to join the Red Army and he and his brother escaped like through Poland. And, you know, like you grow up with that story and is also being Jewish and with the Holocaust and how eugenics was taken up by Hitler and that whole thing. So my orientation, I just feel like when I see that pattern of tyranny, it's so obvious to me and has been, but what's different is that so many more people I think have seen this now. And so I'm optimistic from the standpoint that there are people like, you and just so many parents and and you know people going into medical centers going um why are they asking me about my pronouns or or seeing this that's the good side of the internet you know that that the exposure is much much broader and i think um folks who are trying to change legislation are going about it in a much smarter way so from that standpoint i'm optimistic but i think um there needs to be a new sort of compact or deal with the way physicians are trained, the way they're paid, they're, you know, get some independence back. And that required, that's a huge, huge cultural change that I think, again, I look at myself as trying to be, is it, I think we're a bridge generation, our obligations to teach about the past and try and be a bridge to something, you know, that's better and ethical into the, into the future. So I'm, I'm optimistic because I see, like I said, broader awareness. Um, I see some very smart people, creative people trying to trying to fight this, which is which is great. But I think it's it's um we're like kind of in the sandwich sandwich generation. So I, I think the good side is if you look at that as positive and exciting, because I like to build build things and mm -hmm. in building something new and create is kind of the excitement of being creative, um, which is, you know, one reason, again, I joined FAIR because it has allowed me to kind of, it's allowed me to build up something within healthcare that obviously in the hospital, you know, they're not, there's no platform for me to talk, talk about these issues. So Mm -hmm. I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> well, yeah, that's very, that's great. I, I like that a lot. And I, it's a period of a great difficulty, but also great potential and growth. Yes. So um, where can people find you and follow FAIR and get involved in, do you have some recommendations or links? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you, the, the broader organization FAIR, which is at, um, you know, 
but it's www.fairforall.org. That's where you can see the great work FAIR is doing. We, you know, there's FAIR in the arts that's tackling this illiberalism in the arts, um, FAIR in education doing so many wonderful things. And then FAIR in medicine is there too. It's in one of the drop downs. Um, so you can you can find us there. Um, we have a, a Fair Medicine uh, Twitter uh, handle in there. Um, so you can find find us there. We're doing a lot of collaborative work with other organizations that are doing you know great things like GenSpect. You know, parents with inconvenient truth about trans. We did a webinar last night about their book. Do no harm, you know, great organization that's, um, you know, really tackling more um, on the legislative front. So you can find us also, you know, working, working um, with these, with these other, other groups. Um, hopefully you won't interact with me in an ER um, in the Chicago area. I don't want to see you there, but um, in terms of the advocacy, you can, yeah, find, find us at, uh, at, at FAIR at the website. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's been really, really great to talk with you and really enlightening. And I feel like there were so many different things that you talked about that I'd love to delve into individually at some point. So thank you for a really wonderful conversation and for the work you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. And, and Leslie, you're just a, a, a bright light in this whole movement. You're so bright and do such a great job. So thank you so much for thinking of, of me. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Carrie. Okay.